everybody, and welcome to an episode of Tales from a Vet Tech with me, Tabitha Kusera. Today, we are talking to the awesome Dr. Sarah Jones all about FIP. We discuss the fundamentals of the disease, treatment options, challenges with diagnosing this disease, and more. I hope you enjoy. Sarah. I am so stoked to have you here. Sarah is an amazing veterinarian who is also a registered veterinary technician, and she has done such amazing work with FIP. It's something that we're both really passionate about, but her work has been amazing, and she has some wonderful projects in the works that we will be doing a two-parter on to talk more about FIP. But I figured to get started, if you want to just introduce yourself and let the listeners know a little bit about your career and how you found your love for helping progress medicine for FIP and also help cats with FIP, but also caregivers who are, who are struggling with cats who have FIP. Yeah, that's that's the hardest. I am actually, I, I, can, I can honestly say that I am fortunate enough to never have had one of my own cats have FIP. Um, but I was a technician for a very long time prior to going to vet school. And that's how I know Tabitha. We worked together when we taught <laughs> at a technician college and we were lucky enough to meet each other there. But I'm, I'm fortunate, never had to experience FIP myself, but I am an avid cat lover. I've had cats my entire mm -hmm. life until recently. And as someone who's had lots and lots of cats and worked in shelter medicine previously, I was always really afraid that my cats would develop FIP, as yeah. I'm sure it's kind of in the back of every cat owner's mind. Could my cat develop FIP? Um, and so I used to be a technician and I saw a few cases of FIP as a tech, not many. I don't know if you saw many in the clinic when you were... Attack. Not in clinic, but we both are, we're in the animal welfare world too. So yeah. fair. And so, um, eventually I decided to go to vet school because it was kind of always what I wanted to do. It took me a long time to get there, but I did it. And in my third year of vet school, a classmate said to me, we were just kind of having a, a conversation about one of the classes I, I had missed that day. And it was about ethics. And she said, she's like, oh, I asked them about the FIP treatment. I'm like, wait, what? And she's like, I asked, you know, whoever was doing the panel about how they felt about the new FIP treatment. I'm like, what treatment? And she's like, the illegal treatment. And so I kind of stopped her and I'm like, all right, what the heck are you talking about? So Essentially, she filled me in on this 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 treatment that was a quote unquote black market treatment right. that was curing cats of FIP. And this was back in um, the end of 2019, early 2020. Um, and so she told me about this and I, I went home and I got on the computer and I did some like Internet searching and I found Facebook group FIP Warriors. And so yes. I joined it. 
And I just spent several months just kind of lurking. And like, I would see these crazy cases. I'd see pictures of cats that were like literally on death's door. These cats looked terrible. And I've kind of documented a lot of them. I can go back and show you pictures, but these cats literally were dying and there'd be before and after. And then there'd be a cat three months later that just looked like a new cat. It was thriving. It was living its life. It was quote unquote cured of FIP. Right. And so on that time COVID hit. And so COVID also being a coronavirus was kind of gaining all this popularity. And so remdesivir was also gaining popularity. And so because COVID hit my fourth year veterinary school, quote unquote, clinics, where we'd normally be rotating through the clinics, um, the first three months were online. And so ClinPath, you know, seeing how it's a lot of looking at blood work and cells under a microscope, that lended itself to very easily be an online class. And right. so my online professor at the time, Samantha Evans, she had previously been an FIP researcher. And so I went to her office hours. I'm like, hey, what do you think about this elusive drug? And she's like, wait, what are you talking about? So I told her about, you know, and she'll even tell you, she's like, you know, she started telling me about this Facebook group. She's like, and I almost fell off my chair. Like, and then she started lurking and I'm like, we need to study this. Like, we need to document that not just these, you know, few select cases in California at UC Davis actually were cured of FIP. We need to document the fact that there's hundreds of cats out there being cured every week of FIP. And so we we surveyed those owners um, you know, we, we designed and submitted a survey on this specific Facebook group and we had owners answer it and we published that information. So Amazing. that's kind of what sparked my interest in it initially. And you, we won't talk about all of that today, <laughs> uh, but you're continuing your work because we all have our niches and we all have the things yeah. we love. And FIP yeah. is something that is very near and dear to you and you have really invested your time and knowledge and have connected with so many other amazing colleagues uh, to really progress it. And I'm so excited about your future projects. But with that being said, because everyone may not be familiar, understandably, with FIP. So can you just provide a brief overview of what feline infectious paranitis is and how it affects cats? Yeah, absolutely. So FIP um, stands for feline infectious peritonitis. It is a coronavirus. Um, that's just kind of the form of virus it is, which we're all, all very familiar with at this point in life. Um, that probably, you know, there's different studies out there, but anywhere between 24 and 85% of cats out there will test positive if you test them for this coronavirus. Um, doesn't mean that they have FIP, doesn't mean that they're ever going to get FIP, but cats that have been exposed to this coronavirus will typically test positive for the rest of their life. And so cats that come from multi-cat environments, whether that's a shelter or a cattery or a rescue or a breeder, they're more likely to have been, to have been exposed to it, especially if they were exposed to it at a young age. Kittens shed it more frequently. Um, and kittens are exposed to it more frequently. And cats can actually be positive for coronavirus by two weeks of age. So that's how quickly they can acquire the virus. It's 
um, they contract it via fecal oral route. And so they can't get it from their mother. Typically it's, it's fecal oral, but you know, most cats that have grown up in multi-cat environments have been exposed to it. And I try and tell my clients when we're kind of talking about FIP, um, that you can't think of it like my cat had FIP and then the other cats in my household are also going to contract FIP. It doesn't really work that way. It's more each cat that is exposed to the coronavirus, it's their immune system that is going to trigger this systemic inflammatory response that turns into the malignant form of FIP. And so coronavirus, like I said, anywhere between 24, 25% and 85% of cats will have coronavirus at some point in their life. About 0.4 to 1.5% of cats will ever develop FIP. So it's a very small percentage when you think of the cats out there in, in the entire world. And so it's just this malignant process that, you know, this this usually pretty, you know, benign virus just turns into a very malignant um, form of, you know, vasculitis. And, and you know, until 2018, it was uniformly fatal, 100%. Yeah. So, yeah. What are some common symptoms of FIP that can, which to be fair, this is, we're focusing only on common symptoms because- I have a client currently, it can, it can appear in many different ways. Medicine is fun. And we are, although we have, cause a lot of people are like, there aren't many resources on FAP and me and Sarah were jokingly positively saying prior to the podcast, there's actually <laughs> a lot of resources on FIP. I just think people maybe don't have access or are aware of them, but we'll show those later. Um, so we won't get into everything because it can, it can sh- present itself in so many different ways where none of these yeah. classic symptoms are being seen, which to be fair, that's a lot of disease processes. But I think sometimes I'm sure you do too, especially in animal welfare, where maybe they don't have access to a registered veterinary technician that's familiar with this or a veterinarian, and they see a specific symptom and immediately just yeah. go to it. I wish it was that simple, but medicine is fun and complex. But what are some of the more common symptoms of FIP that cat caregivers should be aware of? So the biggest thing to know about FIP is there's there's two broad categories or two forms. One is what we call effusive or wet FIP. And the other is non-effusive or dry FIP. Wet effusive is a lot easier to, to spot, right. to recognize, diagnose. And just that effusion or that wet FIP tells you right there that there's fluid somewhere. And usually it's fluid in the abdomen. Can also be fluid in the chest, can be fluid chest and abdomen. It can also sometimes be fluid around the heart. Dry form is harder to diagnose. Um, it can be just kind of these pyogranulomatous nodules somewhere in their body, which are really hard to find. It's easier if the dry or non-effusive form takes on a neurological onset or an ocular onset. And so if it's neurological, you'll see signs like she can't talk tonight. Seizures, <laughs> trouble jumping. Um, you know, they will start to stumble. They lose the ability to use their back legs and eventually sometimes their front legs, things like that. Ocular, they start to get um, uveitis. So that's pretty obvious. Their eyes will kind of fill with what's called hyphema, which is kind of like a blood type tinge. Um, 
what FIP or effusive is very, very easy to kind of recognize even for owners. So they'll have this huge pendulous hot belly that's full of fluid, or they'll present to their primary care vet in respiratory distress. Right. So those are kind of the big, huge, obvious things we'll see. The most common signs of FIP tend to be things like very, very vague, like the first signs before they have the neurological signs or the, you know, effusion. They'll have a decreased appetite. They will be lethargic. Um, Probably 60% of these cats will have a fever, things like that. So very vague initially. And then, of course, more because we all know the pot belly and some of the other things. And I think I'm sure you've seen this, too. As we've learned more about FIP, it we are noting a lot more symptoms of FIP because I think, like you mentioned, some of yeah. those less obvious signs were never necessarily associated with FIP. And now that we know more, ideally, right. we we would have FIP on our not that I'm diagnosing, but on our differentials pro- sooner yeah. than we did five years ago. Based, so yeah. at least it's on people's brains, which is exciting. Um, and it's it's interesting you say that because AAFP, yeah. like in every cat, they released yes. last year the guidelines for diagnosing FIP. And they even note in there, now that it's no longer uniformly fatal, people should be looking for it more because there's something we can do. And so. I think it's just any new newer, I mean, it's not completely new, but any newer disease process, I think just getting, seeing a symptom and being able to kind of think outside of the box. I mean, that's what medicine is, right. but I, I am loving that we're catching it sooner and then kind of recognizing, like you mentioned, uh, yeah. less of an appetite is concerning, but that's a symptom of a hundred things. And five years ago, FIP probably wasn't even on anyone's brain. And now no. a lot of us are like, and the earlier, of course, like any disease process, the better. And on what a beautiful segue to how is FIP diagnosed and what are some of the challenges that you've experienced in diagnosing this disease? Oh, right. That's the million dollars. There's, there's no good way. There's still no, there's the biggest problem with FIP always was that there is no definitive diagnostic test prior to the cat dying to definitively diagnose. FIP. You need immunohistochemistry. Um, So you literally need histology samples. So definitively 100% diagnose FIP. There's probably three dozen tests out there for FIP, but like anything, when there's so many diagnostic tests out there for something, that tells you that none of the diagnostic tests out there are any good. Wouldn't say that they're not any good, but there's there's nothing out there that's going to help you. And so we kind of look at it like building a case. There are, you know, a handful of algorithms out there that you can find that can help you rule in or rule out FIP, things that make it more likely or less likely. I will say that the effusive or wet form, if we can get fluid, you know, if we have a cat that comes in that's under two years of age that has a huge pot belly and we tap his, his abdomen and we remove yellow, protonaceous, viscous fluid. Right. We send it off to do PCR on that fluid and it's positive for coronavirus. Yeah. If it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So you can say almost definitively and confidently, yes, those cats 
have FIP, but I have been fooled. I have had a cat that looked exactly like that, that actually did not have FIP. It had toxoplasmosis. So there's no guarantee it's FIP, but it's more likely. Um, I've had another cat out there that we did, um, we got fluid, we got, did an aqueocentesis. I didn't do it. The ophthalmologist did fluid from the eye and sent that out for PCR and it was positive. And so that cat more than likely had right. FIP and responded well to treatment. Um, but there's no one definitive test out there, but effusive cats are easier to diagnose. Effusive cats will also have some very obvious blood work abnormalities. I think the biggest thing we think of as technicians, and I know I learned this in technician school many years ago, was high globulins. Yeah. High globulins always mean something bad, either infectious or cancer. And, you know, really, really high globulins are a huge, you know, bells should be kind of, you know, going off that this could be FIP, especially in a younger sick cat. Um High globulins with a high total bilirubin, those cats are, are are pretty pretty strong suspects for FIP. And then the good news, everyone, just like Sarah mentioned, this did used to be essentially a death sentence, um, actually fairly recently. And the beautiful good news is we're progressing and there are treatments and we're getting actual research on it. Uh, to be better. And there's becoming more than one treatment, which is also awesome. So on that segue, what are the treatment options for cats diagnosed with FIP? Well, not definitively, because it's very challenging. Uh, <laughs> and bad. what is the prognosis with those treatments? It's a great question. And so um, interestingly, we're even starting to say that the treatment out there could be used as a diagnostic test for FIP. Because if cats are really, really sick and they're, you know, very ill, say you have a neurological cat that can no longer hold its head up and it can't walk and it's having cluster seizures and you give this drug and it stops and it gets better, um, that, you know, that could be a diagnostic test at some point, you know. And so, um there is a newer medication. It kind of came on the radar in 2018 and 2019 when researchers at the University of Davis started looking at this medication called GS441524. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, a nucleoside analog drug that um, helps inhibit, um, you know, RNA synthesis of the virus or the coronavirus part that causes FIP. And so they started off with 10 cats where they induced FIP experimentally, and then they cured FIP in these, these, these 10 cats with this drug. And then they thought, well, will this work actually in cats that are naturally infected with FIP? So they did a clinical trial, I think of 30 or 31 cats that were naturally infected with FIP. And I think 27 of those cats were cured of FIP. And so this drug is, the patent for this drug is owned by a company called Gilead Sciences. And presumably due to the fact that this company probably wanted to get FDA approval for this drug use in humans at some point. And this was this was prior to COVID. So, you know, they were thinking it could be helpful for HIV or Ebola, um, things like that. They halted any more clinical trials in cats because if cats had any, you know, adverse events, 
to this medication, it would slow down FDA approval for human use. Right. And so they stopped, they stopped, you know, you know, any more veterinary use of this drug. Well, owners who had a cat that was diagnosed with this 100% uniformly fatal disease wanted to get their hands on this medication, you know, as you and I can obviously imagine, you know, we would want to as well, which created a huge demand um, for this medication. And so the black market, you know, rose to that occasion and started started producing or mass producing this medication. And initially there were reports out there were people buying this drug for $20,000 on the black market. And that's kind of what initially piqued my interest because I would do anything to save my pets. And I just sat there and thought, my God, if my cat was 100% dying, 100%, would I buy this medication from the black market and inject it into my dying cat not knowing what the heck it was? And I don't know if I could do that, you know, and and that's why I wanted more information about it. So, um, but this demand was met by people who were selling it over the internet. Um, and, you know, they were treating their cats at home with no veterinary oversight and their cats were essentially being cured and going on to live normal lives. And so that drug has become far easier to obtain. And the price of that drug now has come down substantially. Um, when people, when I, when we did a study and, and surveyed owners back in 2020 and 2021, the cost, the average cost that owners were paying for the drug was between $5,000 and $21,000. Now you can treat a cat for about, if you have a kitten with effusive FIP, you can get through the 12 week treatment period for about $500. So kind of the range that we we tell owners is anywhere between $500 and $2,000 to treat. Um, you still have to obtain it illegally, though. That's the huge problem with it. 100%. You know, as a veterinarian, we don't, we don't have it. We right. don't stock it. We can't touch it. We can't administer it. So we can guide our clients. We can say, go to this website, go to this Facebook group, tell them you have a cat with FIP and see if you want to do what they recommend. Um, but, you know, that's that's kind of still unfortunately where we're at. But owners are pretty comfortably using it. And there are sites out there, there are Facebook groups out there now that are trusted. Um, they actually order the medications in themselves, I'm told, and they have them tested for purity and efficacy. So, and I think it's getting... It's getting more popular. And of course, I want to have empathy for everyone involved because I understand how frustrating, like Sarah mentioned, we would probably do literally anything. I would put my house up um, to, to save our animals and have yeah. them have a good quality of life. But then also from a veterinary standpoint with our backgrounds, it, it I feel like it might be more challenging for us at the time, like five years ago, right? To, I, I agree with you. I, I would definitely probably have to think on that a lot more than maybe the general public, uh, who maybe don't have a veterinary background. And I understand it's frustrating because I hear people say like vets need to understand this and talk about this. And thankfully, I think for everyone in animal welfare, we are talking about it. It is becoming, even though it may not feel like that, it is so prevalent. And me and Sarah invested in in this and also in the industry. So I understand our our view may be a little different, but vets are learning more about this, but vets are limited also because of what Sarah just said. So it, it can be challenging. And that's something where 
I think Sarah tried to learn more and I did too because I knew about FIP. And then as a veterinary technician, I saw the resources that were available and they were severely concerning. Uh, I'm I'm talking <laughs> five years ago. And yeah, my heart broke because I'm like, these caregivers are amazing. And I'm sure no one is malicious in this. But I just saw a video of how to give an injection. And oh, no <laughs> comments. We just won't elaborate. <laughs> um, and yeah. And it broke my heart because I'm like, there aren't any people to help. I mean, let alone understand the the drugs and how they're processed and the side effects and and understanding all of that, but also just how to give the injection. And they were bless everyone. We understand why you were doing this, and it's getting a lot better. Um, but we need to have empathy for our veterinary professionals because a lot of us didn't know about it legally. We could mm-hmm. not obtain that drug, and understandably, I can't say in my vet clinic down low, <laughs> go buy this in a parking lot. That's you just, right. I mean, some of us were, uh, but I, I, I just want to mention that because I think we're all out here doing our best. I understand how frustrating it is. It is getting a lot better, but we mm-hmm. literally could not obtain the drugs legally. And if you are a credit, just like if I was a human nurse, you yeah. can't do that. Which is usually no. a good thing. Um, <laughs> usually. Uh, usually a good thing. But all these amazing caregivers who got this information and it's been spreading through veterinary professionals like ourselves, through animal welfare, we're all connecting and talking. And there's been a huge change. And hopefully in the near future, we will have a non-black market option. And I think it's sooner than we oh. think. I'm, I really do. I mean, honestly, Sarah, for, for us who's, who have been involved and kind of seen it in a very short period of time, in just a few years. And I'm sure all of you out there who work in animal welfare and have been dealing with this too, I do like to focus on the positive because we see a lot of horrible stuff, but the progress that we have made in just a few years is, I will tell you. It's, it's been intense. We, uh, number one, I, veterinarians are scared, right? They don't want to lose their license and they don't know what they're allowed to say and what they're not allowed to say. And to be fair, this this is the first time we have encountered this in our profession. It's probably not going to be the last, but this is the first time in the veterinary profession we have encountered something like this, where we know that there's a treatment and we literally can do nothing about it, right? Like we don't, we don't know what the legal ramifications are for us. And the truth is we're allowed to have that conversation and owners can do what they want. A hundred percent. That said, that said, you know, I think that not only being scared, we don't know as professionals, if this medication that we're telling our clients to go obtain or even mentioning to them and letting them make their own choices. We don't know what it is and we don't know if it's going to hurt those cats. Right. And so that was another thing that, that we were, I was afraid of, you know, when I started researching this, um, I will say that, that I think things are changing. I a hundred percent agree with you. Um, when we first wrote this paper and finished this, this, this initial research project that we did, and we tried to get it published, we were not just denied 
from a handful of uh, journals. We were scolded, <laughs> I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, and I appreciate your honesty and all your hard work. Was- <laughs> Thank you. It was not well received initially. Yeah. Um, and so to the point where we were, it was, it was challenging. And once it was finally published and the response that we got, we've been, you know, my research group has spoken the last two years at ACVIM. We were asked to speak at a conference, um, in Gainesville, Florida, held by every cat and you know aafp and so things have changed substantially in the past two years as we have a better understanding of what's happening to these cats two three four five six years not six years but five years out if they're still alive if they have any secondary complications which there are some um and we're still learning about i'm sure you saw that study i should know this off the top of my head was it a urinary stone yes Yes. Oh, yeah. So because any new good, right, we we're not saying it's bad. It's just like any right. other disease process and drug. As we learn more yep. about it, it is important to be educated and know about the po- the possibility. And we're all still learning about that because thankfully people like you and other people who are, again, communicating, working together, getting research. Um, yeah. Can you elaborate more on the stone? Because I I read the study yeah. like a so, month ago and I already forgot. No worries. So the University of Minnesota, they have a urolith stone lab. And so if you remove any, you know, bladder stone from a pet, you can send it to the university for, I believe it's free. Don't quote me, but I think that they analyze stones for free. And they they received two stones from cats two cats that had been treated for neuro FIP. Um, And the reason neuro FIP is important here, and I mentioned that, is because depending on the form of FIP, the dose is going to change. And so neuro is the form that requires the highest dosing. Um, And so these two different cats were treated for neuro FIP, both quote unquote cured for neuro FIP, um, but later developed these bladder stones. And so the stones were sent off to the lab for analysis. And what they actually found in the chemical composition of these stones was traces of GS441524 or the medication that, you know, we're using to treat FIP. And so the stones in their, their basic chemical composition had this drug in them. And so we do know that it's urinarily excreted. And so in some, we still need to know a lot more, but that's, yeah. And if you are, oh, go on. Sorry. I was going to say just some cats are stone formers, some aren't. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, So we're not seeing this, we're not seeing this profoundly often, but I think it's something we're going to see a lot more of and we need to be aware of. And so with the, we've kind of already touched on this as far as like getting more information, understanding side effects, understanding the importance of having these discussions and feeling less scared now that we have more resources Are there any other recent advancements in FIP research or treatment that you find particularly promising or exciting? Oh, there's so many. Uh, (laughs) I love that. See, yay. But I I will say things that I think are important, like tidbits out there that I think are important to note. Um, There was a study recently as well um, that I thought was really interesting as far as, you know, 
what are we looking at afterwards? And, right. and, you know, what are these cats doing for three, four years down the line? Yes, we're saying they're cured. And what does cured mean? It means that they are no longer clinical for their signs of FIP. And so, you know, the study that we did on it was about 400 cats. We asked owners how quickly they saw their cat, how quickly they could say that their cat was improved. And they said it about one week. Um, some people said within 24 hours, they saw a difference and, you know, they answered that their cat was quote unquote normal or the average return to normal was at about three and a half weeks, three and a half to four weeks. These cats were normal. And the owners said clinically, they didn't think that they had FIP anymore, but, you know, they're on drugs for 12 weeks. Then they're in observation for 12 weeks. Some of these cats relapse and, and we, we kind of wonder what does that mean? They're no longer right. on the medication. Are they really cured? Is the virus gone? And so there was a there was a report out there of a cat. Um, and I'll just kind of share some of the snippets of it. And this was kind of recent. It was a postmortem examination of a cat. Um, unfortunately, this cat had passed away. This cat had previously been diagnosed with ocular FIP. This cat was actually diagnosed with ocular FIP via immunohistochemistry, which is the only way we can actually truly, truly diagnose it, the only definitive way to diagnose FIP. Um, and this was after enucleation of the, of the affected eye. So that eye was sent out for immunohistochemistry, and this cat was definitively diagnosed with FIP. Cat was treated um, for 12 weeks with GS therapy, um, went on to be quote-unquote cured. And then uh, 240 days after, you know, stopping treatment and being cured of FIP and living his normal cat life, he died in a road traffic accident, is what they say. Um, so the cat did pass away um, and they did a necropsy on the cat um, and they did, you know, um, histopath and immunohistochemistry again kind of on multiple organs. They looked at, um, you know, various parts. They also did, you know, feline coronavirus um, RNA and feline coronavirus antigen, um, you know, quantitative reverse transcription, um, real-time PCR, and immunohistochemistry on many different body fluids and many tissues, and they could not find any trace, not only of FIP, but of oh. coronavirus as well. So zero evidence that this cat ever had coronavirus itself. So um, I think that that's really interesting because it documents that this cat was emphatically cured. There was no nice. traces of this virus, even in the benign form in his body. So I think that's one interesting thing. Um, another interesting thing out there is that, you know, injections, injection is kind of what we think of when we think of giving these or giving this medication. It's an right. injectable form. The reason we think of injectable forms is because it is more cost effective. Um, but there are oral formulas out there as well. And so we've looked at um, my the group I do research with had submitted um, oral medications obtained from the black market as well as injectable medications obtained from the black market. And they were submitted to actually be analyzed to see what was actually in these products. And the amount of GS that was reported to be in these products actually um, the amount and the concentration we found in these products was actually higher 
than what was even reported on the bottles. And so I think it's important to note that, yes, you're buying your medications over the Internet from strangers. But a lot of these drugs, when actually sent to a third party lab, have been analyzed. And basically what they're telling you is in them is in them, at least at the concentration they're saying, if not more. That's reassuring. (laughs) In some ways, yeah. (laughs) And that there are oral options. Yes. And yeah, the more we learn about this drug or the, the drug and the disease process, yeah. we're going to yeah. have more options. Because I think I know as a veterinarian, I always like to ask about how do you support your cat caregivers emotionally and practically when their cat's diagnosed with FIP? Because mm-hmm. thankfully, we know now that it's not a death sentence, but it's a horrible news. Okay. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> and then the giving the injections, I mean, obtaining the medications, giving the injections, there's so much involved. It's Um, such an emotional, it's so draining, I'm sure. I can't even imagine. And thankfully, we're getting more options. And uh, we're going to do a second episode where we talk all about, you know, it's Tabitha. So uh, we're going to talk all about (laughs) how to make administering oral and injectable, because I know a lot most are using injectable, less stressful. Yeah. Um, yes. Because, and less likely to break the bond. Because, as someone that is a behavior tech, I do a lot of cooperative care with cats. And thankfully, I've got to work with so many amazing caregivers. And it's been a lot of fun and trial and error and a lot of challenges because <laughs> we're all doing our best. Um, but, and Sarah has as well. And there's a lot of things that we can do. To make this less stressful, because of course you're going to give these injections. We need these cats to live. But mm-hmm. I also understand seeing your cat this stressed out, having to give these injections, and in some cases you can't. And the human animal bond breaking, the severe yeah. physical and emo- there's a lot. And thankfully, we're going to talk all about that on a second episode. But I rant. Um, how do you support cat caregivers emotionally and practically when you are? talking to them about their cat with FIP or you may even be the veterinarian that they're working with that helps to not with a definitive diagnosis sometimes um, that helps to provide that diagnosis. And so it's important to note that right now I will tell you that the oral form is as effective as the injectable. And so that is probably one of the most exciting bits of information out there. Um, And I don't think that there's anything out there uniformly specifically published looking at that. But, you know, we did our study with the 400 some cats or 393 cats. Um, Some used oral, some used injectable. And there doesn't seem to be a difference in cats as far as their prognosis or their long term outcome is whether you use injectable or the oral. The only problem with the oral medication is it's not as cost effective. Yeah. More and that might be one of the one hangups. And that's that's kind of that's kind of one of the big things. The other big thing there is that um, you know, you worry if they're truly terminally like if if they're very ill, if they're in the hospital and they're they're non-responsive or they're not eating, it's hard to get oral medications in them. And those first few days, injectable may be better, especially if there's compromise to their 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 barrier of their gut and things just aren't moving as well as they should be or absorbing like they should be. But past those few days, I, I don't think that there's any problem in using the oral. Um, 
I work in specialty medicine and I have seen, and I don't know if it's because I'm looking for it because I'm so passionate about it. Um, But I have seen a lot of FIP cats. I've probably seen, you know, I haven't been a vet for very long, but I've probably seen and diagnosed close to 20 or 30 cats in my, you know, two and a half years of practicing medicine. So I think it's a significant amount of cats for a disease that we don't see that frequently. Um, My Basically, I, I kind of run through the story with them. I kind of tell them about this medication and I tell them that it's out there and why it's effective and why they can't get their hands on it. And my favorite my favorite client story that I always tell um, was I was working an ER shift during my rotating internship and it was probably like 11 o'clock at night. And I went in with this couple who had driven like four hours to to see our specialty hospital and they thought their cat had pancreatitis and it was a it was a it was an obvious FIP cat. So I went in and I sat down and I just kind of started telling them about this and telling them about the treatment. And the guy started looking around like almost like paranoid. And he's kind of looking around and he has like this look on his face and he's like, am I on film? Are you filming me? Is this a joke? Is this a prank? Oh, and I was like, no. Um, But it sounded so crazy to these poor people whose cat was ill that Hey, guess what? Your cat has this fatal disease. Oh, guess what? We can treat them. But oh, guess what? You have to go down the road to a parking lot and meet a stranger and buy the medication in a paper bag. And so if you think about that, there you're being hit with so many different things at once, right? Your cat's sick. Your cat could die. Your cat might live. You have to give this injection that's going to burn like hell the ph of this medication is like between 1.4 and 1.6 that's battery acid you're injecting under the skin every 24 hours sometimes if they're really every 12 hours for the first week or so and so it's so so much cat's gonna run it's gonna hide it's gonna cry you you visually are witnessing your cat deteriorating and dying in front of your eyes and so it's so so stressful you know, we did a follow-up survey study on some of the cats from our initial study and some of these owners. And, you know, a third of the owners said they didn't know if they would do it again because it was so emotionally stressful or damaging to their their bond with their cats. But I think what's important to note is that there are ways that we can make it more comfortable for cats if we can, if, if oral medications are an f- option financially for owners, I think it's a good way to go. Um, gabapentin goes a long way, you know, as far as just patient compliance, as well as patient comfort. I think it's really important that we always prescribe something that makes the cat more comfortable when we're giving these medications, as well as making it easier for the owner to do it. Um, I think different vets have different levels of comfort as far as what they will do to support owners. But I know myself and my technicians, we will teach owners to give a sub-Q injection of saline. I think that that's one way we can do it. You know, we can't give the medication, but if owners are going to be doing this at home, I think it's important to be supporting them. And so answering their questions like we would answer the questions of somebody who has their cat recently diagnosed with diabetes, there's no difference, or chronic kidney disease, and we're teaching them to give sub-Q fluids under the skin. I don't think there's a difference in, in teaching, you know, owners or lay people how to comfortably and appropriately administer medications at home. Um, And so I think that's 
that's the best way I can support owners, monitoring blood work, answering their questions and supporting the cat. So the cat has FIP, but the clinical signs of FIP are kind of vast, right? They're going to have a decreased appetite. They might be febrile. They might be nauseous. They might, you know, have, you know, fluid or swelling around their chest and things like that. So we support the cat in any way that we can. So do we need to use Miritaz to help them eat, anti-vomiting, anti-nausea medications, things like that. Love it. Answering their questions, addressing the symptoms yeah. that you can. And I think being transparent is, I am someone mm-hmm. that is very transparent with my clients. And I think yeah. that it makes them bond to me more, but also feel more comfortable. And it's okay, I think, for veterinary professionals out there who may not be comfortable mm-hmm. with talking about this for a variety of reasons. I love that story that you shared. Um, it's <laughs> because it's challenging, but I think I I never even thought in my head, right? Because by the time I'm involved, mm-hmm. these things have been discussed. And but I never even honestly thought of it from the perspective of this cat came in. Uh, we already have to tell clients that their animals are very ill, which are very challenging conversations. Of course, yeah. we want to support them. But then if I went to the hospital and the nurse was like, this is what it is. And you have to go buy this in a parking lot. I would, I don't, I don't know what I would do. Um, so it's interesting to me because that story, I, I never even thought of it from that perspective. Um, so thank you for sharing that, but also for veterinarians who may not be comfortable or confident talking about this, what would you, but they want to support and they, they want to do what they can. What would you recommend for that veterinarian professional to do in that moment? Of course, we're going to talk about some of your favorite resources that they can at least help clients find to, to learn more and then they can actively learn more as well. But what else would you recommend for them? So if they're if they're faced with their first FIP case and they they're not really sure how to handle it, right? And they're not sure, or a client comes in and says, mm-hmm. "My cat's experienced this," and maybe they're they've been on some groups and have some knowledge, but it's challenging, and they're upset too because they're not sure what's going on, and they essentially ask the vet for this drug because I understand mm-hmm. from the general public's perspective, they may think that we can have access to it. So how would you handle those types of situations? I think a lot of clients and I've heard from various vets and I've been asked myself, can we have remdesivir? Uh, Because essentially remdesivir, once you take remdesivir, it actually goes through a first pass and it becomes the, it becomes the more active GS441524. So, you know, what we're actually treating FIP with is actually a more active form of remdesivir. And so remdesivir is just conditionally licensed in the United States. In the United Kingdom and Canada, they're using remdesivir for cats. It's not an issue. I guess I shouldn't say Canada. I know, I know, I think I, I want to retract that. Oh, that's um, okay. <laughs> In the United or in like the UK and Australia, they're using remdesivir for cats. Um, They're able to get it. And so a lot of owners will say, can you give me remdesivir? And here in the US, it's just conditionally licensed for COVID use for humans. It's extraordinarily expensive. You need 10 times as much remdesivir as you need of GS to treat cats. And so I, I think 
vets get kind of hung up on the fact, well, no, we can't get our hands on remdesivir. That's really the only legal thing I can get my hands on. I'm not sure what to do. Um, and it is challenging, you know, and I don't know if there's yeah. a right answer. Um, you can't stock it in your clinic. You can't administer it in your clinic. Um, you technically cannot you and your staff cannot administer it in the clinic. Um, there are hospitals out there that turn away if the cat's hospitalized and, you know, an owner is coming in for a visit. Um, but legally, we can't have anything to do with that treatment. But um, it's also not the truth to say that there's no treatment out there, right? And I remember I was studying for my licensing exam and I was just kind of working on this study at the same time as studying for my boards to be a vet. And one of the questions in like the study prep, you know, um, came up was, is there a treatment for FIP? Um, and the correct answer for the test or the practice test I was taking was there is no treatment. It's 100% fatal or whatever. Um, and that's that's not the truth anymore. It's right. it. There is a treatment. It's not fatal, but it's complicated. And I think that's the best way. And like you said, just being transparent, saying to your client, there is something we can do, but it's not straightforward, you know, and it's it's complicated. It's the wild, wild west still. But there are resources out there. There are places that you can go. And the good news is some of these Facebook groups um that help owners obtain the medication, plan a protocol, treat their cats, you know, through the entire process. These admins of these Facebook groups, they are so much better at this and know more about FIP than I would ever could ever dream of knowing. Like they are so knowledgeable. Um, I have friends who are admins and I literally text them with most FIP cases I have, um, you know, and I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? Um, and so the good news is they are so supportive and helpful to the people, uh, to the people going through this because they they have, you know, five new cases a day, every admin out there. They're helping these owners through it. And so they've seen everything. They know how to not just help them through it medically, as sad as that is for us in the vet field, being like, go listen to these people on the internet. Don't listen to us. Yeah. You know, it's you know, goes against everything we've always said, but they're so supportive and they know how to not just physically get the cat through it, but emotionally get the owners through it too. Yeah. I think that having other people just alone, right. Having other people to talk to and support you throughout this, because also even the people who are well-educated in it, which there aren't as many because it is, all these things are, are newer, it can be and changing every day. Yeah. And it's changing. It, it's changing every day. I think it, it could be, I can't remember what I was going to say because it's a late night, but um, night. <laughs> I was essentially saying that it could even be challenging for them because they're still learning every five seconds. And it's like anything, it's a lot of trial and error and a lot of experience along with, I know that they go above and beyond and take in all the information, all the new studies, all the new webinars, all the new things that are coming out. So you do have support. There are resources. And for you, Sarah, because there's a few that are my favorite, but your favorite <laughs> is way more important. Um, what are your favorite resources for people? And this goes for veterinary professionals, animal welfare, or 
maybe you're at home struggling with a, a cat with FIP. We're sending love to you and your cat. You are not alone. But what would your go-to resources be? Yeah. And so that is probably the most important question because all we can do is say, I think your cat probably has FIP. We can't definitively diagnose it and we can't treat it. So we need to show them where to go and what to do. And so for a veterinarian, um, the best website, the best resource out there for a veterinarian is the webpage. Um, It's FIPVetGuide.com. That's going to be a place for veterinarians to go to really brush up on everything. It's managed by a good friend of mine um, who who I do research with. Um, and then as far as for owners and veterinarians, anyone listening who needs help with their cat, there is a website and then there's a Facebook group. They're the same thing. The Facebook group is going to be faster, but, um, the Facebook group is FIP global cats on Facebook. You go on there, you post, Hey, I think my cat has FIP. And then you check your messages an admin will message you and and help you through the rest of the process. But that FIPGlobalCats.com is also a web page if for some reason you don't have access or you don't want to be on Facebook. Um, There used to be FIP, there still is FIP Warriors, but um, the Warriors and the people who now have FIP Global Cats, they were all once the FIP Warriors 5.0 and they've parted ways. And so... We recommend FIP Global Cats. Amazing. And I'm going to share the links that we talked about and most likely the studies that we mentioned uh, in the show notes if you want to really nerd out. But also, I think that these things are really helpful to have, especially (laughs) if you are a caregiver and or you're a foster and you're more familiar than this than maybe the veterinary staff or the other staff that work there. So you can share these awesome resources and learn more together, which is great. Thank you so much for all this amazing information, Sarah. And like I said, we're going to have a part two that focuses mostly on how to administer treatments with less stress and how to support caregivers with cats with FIP. Um, And because I was like, we have to talk about this, but we already have so much (laughs) to talk about. So Sarah's so amazing. She's going to get a two-parter. Uh, but I always like to end my episodes by asking my guests, what is something that currently brings you happy or brings you joy, brings you happy. Let's make that a tales from a vet tech thing. <laughs> um, you guys, it's 1030. It's been a really long week. I leave for a, a conference for five days. So I'm overworking. Be kind. Um, <laughs> but what is something that currently brings you joy? Something that brings me joy is I haven't talked to Sarah in a minute because her schedules are so mental. And it's been so awesome seeing you. And I'm totally going to come to Columbus and visit you within the next ah. month. I promise. All right. You have to. Well, and I can hold you to that. With I know it's recorded. Oh, shit. I have. <laughs> exactly. Now we have like actual <laughs> documented proof oh, that you're going to come visit me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, something that brings me joy. Well, I actually am very happy that I've gotten to talk to you as well. I know we text here and there. But it, it 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 isn't enough. So it would be lovely to sit down and see you um, and tell you everything that's happened. And I don't know how long it's been since I've seen you. Yeah, it's so interesting for all the listeners. Was me it- and Sarah met in, we both taught at a veterinary technician school 10 years ago. Is that 
It was a really long time ago. Woo! And she yeah. she really wanted to be a veterinarian and she was an amazing veterinary technician and she killed <laughs> it. And then she took it to another level because she loves eternal medicine and cats. And she did all these amazing <laughs> residencies. And then I somehow actually got the day of BTS and started. It's just so it's so awesome to see my friends. <laughs> you talk about these things that you want to do and you're doing it. And I'm I'm so fucking proud of you. Like you. I'm so proud of you. You killed I'm it. Just sitting outside, like the first day we met, like we shared like hummus. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. We sat outside. And I was like, I'm going to be a vet. And you're like, I'm going to be a behavior of BTS. And we actually look at us. That is so funny. And we're still friends. We just need you. You, everybody out there knows how it is. You love everybody. We just have to make more time for our friends and family always, even though we love our jobs. But it's important. Well, thank you so much for being here, Sarah. We will definitely have you back on and share all those amazing resources. Thank you for your time and all you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Sarah for sharing all of her amazing knowledge about this disease that thankfully we are learning more and more about every day so we can help more cats, which is an awesome thing. Stay tuned to part two of FIP discussion with Sarah Jones, and I hope everyone has an amazing day.